it sometimes surprises me that certain movie titles had never been used before. Like, The Tomorrow War had never, ever been a movie title before. Like, it's kind of insane to be the first one to be like, yeah, we're going to do it. I also think about it whenever I see a one-word movie, and it's just, like, conflicted or transcendence. And I'm like, nobody came up with this no before? No one. <laughs> one word. Yeah, Unstoppable. I was like, never? Wanted? Really? Never? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Wanted. for> real. <laughs> Ants with a Z? The Only last one? airbender? No one's done that? God. Like, what the? <laughs> like, now I've heard everything. Welcome to Two Reels Podcast, where we take a recent film and find its perfect double feature pairing. I'm your host this week, Rod Bastenmare. And with me today, a man known much too well in the Southern Florida stripper scene, Davey Rubin. How's it going? Really good. I'm trying to reestablish my reputation. So one one day at a time. Yeah, you have some work to do, but every episode is a new day. Every episode is a new day. So true. And also joining Davey and I is a man who once put a gun to my temple for a suitcase full of cocaine Joey being Khan. What's good, Joey? Rod, I really feel like our friendship started that day, and it means so much that you'd bring it up on the pod. Yeah, I think so too. The minute you didn't pull the trigger, I was like, that's a real one. I like him. <laughs> I like this dude. He's got jokes. Uh, <laughs> he's got jokes. He's somewhat fun to kick it with. If he doesn't kill me by the end of this meeting, maybe we'll get lunch sometime. Chop cheese um, late at night. Chop cheese. <laughs> We're here to talk about A24's latest contribution to the Southern Florida film canon that I feel like has taken up the last 10 years of our lives. Do you want to start us off, Davey? Sure, yeah. So we watched, uh, yeah, the newest A24 film, Zola, directed by Janixa Bravo. And it's a roughly true story based on 148 tweets that went out in 2015 by, is it Azia Zola King? Is that how, or Isaiah? How would you guys pronounce it? I think Azia. Okay. And it was a huge, huge viral story. It went crazy. Uh, there were articles written about it. I think a big one in Rolling Stone. And then eventually uh, it got turned into a movie. And it's starring Taylor Page, Riley Keough, I don't know how you pronounce her name, Nicholas Braun, and Coleman Domingo are the names I wrote down, but there's other people in this movie. Really fun, crazy film. It's kind of like a roller coaster ride on screen that you never thought you'd be on and are upset that you're there but don't want to stop. Hey. Last month, I went dancing at this cute spot in Florida where my roommate's girl made like five Gs a night. Because my we just met yesterday and you're already trying to take hoe trips together? Be ready by two. Hi, bitch! You want to hear a story about how me and this bitch fell out? It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense. You want to go somewhere with me? That's my place. Shut it so bad. Dear Heavenly Father, we are asking you a special prayer today. We asking you to send us niggas. Send us niggas with culture. 
Them does niggas with good credit. What brings y'all here? We making shmoney. Money, titties, money, titties. From here on out, watch every move this bitch make. And I really liked it. What'd you guys think? Rod? This was an interesting film. I remember this Twitter thread in 2015 and reading it on Twitter and being instantly just deeply taken by how incredible the voice of this person was and how much they were able to sort of like articulate what was happening in their mind at the time and also be a narrator at the same time. It's a really strong bit of like digital media content, I feel like. And I remember hearing about this story being... Um, optioned like years ago for a film and it took a while to come to the screen I think Zola is a really interesting film and I really enjoy watching it as a film I feel like there are choices that are being made for the film that I personally would not have anticipated for the Twitter thread that this is based on it's a pretty like glacial film it has like a very interesting humid sense of pace i feel like whereas if i was to hear that a film was based on a twitter thread i would think it was much more chaotic and sort of like turbulent and relentless and this film has this very sort of interesting um dreamlike feel to it i think this film makes a lot of interesting choices that were not what i expected and make for a, a different film than i was anticipating but as a film zola is really interesting i think i found it interesting and appreciated it more than i objectively liked it what did you think joey i was this was the first film i saw back in theaters so that's like grading on a curve it was just like such a high to be sitting in a fucking theater eating popcorn watching a movie and i think uh, there i've seen some conversation about how hurt this got by the pandemic and that it had the Sundance buzz and then sat on the shelf for a year and a half. But I honestly think this needed to be a theater movie. Like the look of it, it looks very film like it's, you know, it's got like the crazy South Florida look, but also the kind of washed out look that's become a 24 South Florida filter. And, uh, that looks so good on a big screen. And I think like, it's interesting you said it was glacial, Rod, because for me it felt it felt a little bit like uncut gems in a way, where it's just like, we are on this train, it is going somewhere, I don't know what's going to come next, but I know we're kind of caught in this situation by like an external force, and we are just going from point A to point Z, and I have no idea how we're going to get there. And I think uh, it's interesting because the backstory is so known. We know Zola tweeted this out. You never really have a fear that she's going to be in danger. And it creates kind of like a weird vibe in the movie because some of the movie feels like it's about, oh no, she's going to get pulled into this terrible situation. But because we know she is the one who is telling the story and tweeting the story, there's kind of this uh, shield up around her. And it kind of creates a weird energy that I enjoyed, but also probably hurt the movie in the long run because, you know, you want your protagonist to be at risk sometimes. And there is a way in which she's not at risk, even when she's going through this incredibly scary world. Yeah, it feels like she's breaking the fourth wall, even when she isn't actively doing it. 
it's like you're watching the whole thing with her and then she, she actually will talk to you occasionally and actually breaks the fourth wall but even when she's not you just know you're along for the ride with her and the only two people at least for me that i knew would be okay at the end were going to be me and her <laughs> definitely i feel like we should explain maybe just like a quick bit about what the film is about the film is essentially the story of zola a woman who encounters another woman named stephanie played by riley co I really need to figure out also how to say her last name. It's deeply troubling. Well, if she wants us to say it right, she should take a couple vowels out of it. I would (laughs) love if the OU could just sort of make a decision on, like, which way they want to go. But that's really her journey and her truth. But Zola encounters this woman named Stephanie at this restaurant that she's working at. Stephanie's a dancer, a stripper. So is Zola. And the next day, Stephanie invites her on this trip to Florida where she promises her sort of this like one night gig that will rake in a lot of money for her and then they'll be in and out and back in their town and things unravel and go psychotic from there and the tension builds and Zola is sort of a like you guys were saying both an observer a participant and like a victim like sort of of this chaos that's happening um yeah i i agree it's funny that you compare it to uncut gems because i find zola to be i mean like i said glacial but that sounds more like an insult it's more that like i feel there is this i feel the film has a weird pacing issue i don't know maybe this was just me but there is a way in which the film sort of has this start and stop start and stop feel that uncut gems actually to me does not have like uncut gems feels endlessly propulsive like it feels almost like it's constantly on sort of like at the climax like everything could be like a climactic moment or something it's a bunch of climactic moments stitched together to make an entire film whereas Zola feels like everything is like pre-climax like it's just sort of this like rising tension in some way I think there's just like a I was trying to think of a better way to phrase this because it feels both limited in in like the language and also weirdly insulting and I don't mean it in that way but there's sort of like an artistic taste that's placed on the film that I appreciate and makes for a really interesting film but maybe I'll propose this question to you guys if I was to tell you that like for the first time a twitter thread was adapted into a film what would you tell me you expect the energy of that to be like what is a twitter thread's energy and how would you imagine it in a film does that question make sense joey do you yeah i mean i guess i guess what strikes me is like i was so nervous about that exact question when i went to watch this film because i was expecting like the worst of uh birds of prey when we watched it and it was kind of like this is the cartoon version of what 2020 feels like it's like kind of zam blow tweet you know and we had a little bit of the uh you know showing them sending messages or being on their phone and it felt kind of real and still had a little bit of like the bubble gun bubble gum feel that i think she did so well in this movie but it didn't feel too much like i need to explain to you what <laughs> shit <laughs> i need to explain to you what uh, Twitter is and what social media is. I think it felt more like we we're remaining in it, even when we we're seeing 
them playing with things like Backpage and Twitter and Tumblr and these things that are recognizably of 2015 without them being like, yeah, like Vine. Like, I don't need to explain to you what social media is. You guys all live through this. And this is just a movie that includes social media in it. So I think that was better for me. I would worry that like in the wrong hands, Twitter thread becomes movie could be very over the top. Like we need them tweeting the whole time. We need to kind of see them on Twitter because Twitter is going to be a thing. Right. Like all of that. And I think it was a little less involved with that. Right. Yeah. I guess I would worry that it would just be too fast paced based on any social media thread. Just too much cutting in between and, the story is told in a, a great way because of the limit of letters and words that you can have in a mm-hmm. tweet. So it's in these little chunks. And I'd be worried that this movie would just be like 148 sections of like storytelling as opposed to a congruent story. I actually was thankful it was not that. And I think that the biggest problem that I found in the movie that I sort of think you're touching on without saying it, Rod, is... It felt like they couldn't decide whether this was a thriller or a comedy. And Uncut Gems was a thriller. I mean, it had funny moments and you laughed, but I was like close to having a heart attack the whole time I watched Uncut Gems. And they are so constantly cutting the tension in Zola that you never feel that stress. Because even in the most stressful moments, you're a second away from essentially a gang rape. And then it just jumps into like, a two minute funny section and then we move on or you know you have a pimp threatening to kill somebody and then the dumb boyfriend says something stupid and you move on and like every time you're kind of stressed it's cut with a butter knife you know like it's really they keep taking the air out of the tires and i think that was kind of a problem with the film honestly yeah well there's so there's a section I, i read an interview with the director that she did in new york magazine and she was talking about how uh she said the thing she wrote was a piece of stressful comedy. She wrote a trauma comedy. And I think that totally gets to what you're talking about, Davey, because it would be really weird to adapt this and make it a stressful thriller, even though all of the content of that Twitter thread is stressful as hell because the way it was presented and kind of like the magic of it was, holy shit, this is a world I've never been to. I myself would lose my shit within it, but you're seeing this woman who was so unbothered by it and funny and specific in a way that's like incredible. That's like her superpower in the Twitter thread is that you could present this absolute terrifying, you know, thing that like the stakes are literally being sold into sex slavery to a pimp or dying at multiple different points and it's all kind of delivered with a funny you know entertaining bent i think my biggest issue with the movie and i think it's i don't know if there's it's a hurdle you could get over is her tone is so amazing in the twitter thread and it is that remove but when you see a main character in a movie who is that removed and kind of above it makes them feel like they're not at risk. And I don't know how you can create a person who is as funny as the person who delivers the Twitter thread in retrospect and then put them in the scene and make it realistic. Cause like she would, no one is that funny 
at the time when their life is at risk. You know, there, there has to be some fear at some point, but I think the director couldn't see that in the character or didn't want to deliver it that way. And it creates a situation where you're like, this person is just fucking, I mean, badass as hell, but also just like crazy removed from this insanity going around her. Yeah, I agree. I think that you guys both hit on a way better articulation of my problems with the film. And again, these are problems that sort of like coexist with so many things that I enjoy about the film. But yeah, I agree. I think the film has a really hard time deciding what it wants to be. There's sort of like a depth that it's sort of implying. But I think my I've, I found Zola to be almost too much of an observer. I think her narration comes in too sporadically where you almost forget that there is narration until it suddenly pops up. There's these large gaps where you don't hear her speak at all, both in voiceover or in the room really. And I think it throws off what her command of those rooms are, what her command of the story is. I think she feels too much like an observer, whereas the biggest point of interest in the Twitter thread was that she's participant, observer, narrator, documentarian, victim, like vengeful. It's like she's all these things at once. Expert. And I just, expert, yeah, expert is giving you like the lowdown. They have some of that in the film, the lowdown of like the language, what these things mean. But there's just a way in which she feels really disconnected and sort of distant to me from the film, even though in my opinion, she's actually one of the strongest parts of it. I think Taylor Page's performance as Zola is dynamite she's so funny she does so much in so little the scene where she's at the pool with coleman domingo's character and they're having this sort of really intense talk back she just feels so in command so strong and yet so light and so funny i really thought she was like my biggest standout in the film i loved her presence i loved every choice she made they felt like real choices to me what did you guys think of her she was awesome. Yeah, I, I really liked both the leading women. I thought the film totally stood on their backs. She was incredible. So was Riley, Keo, and just watching them too. I could have just watched them to do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, I think the thing that another thing we're talking about is like clearly, I mean, Janisa Bravo doesn't make this movie if she's not in love with the character Zola that she read in the Twitter thread. Jeremy O'Harris doesn't write it. No one wants to star in it. No one wants to do it. There's this built in feeling for this character. And I think the only, my only issue with the film, which by the way, I loved, I feel like we're nitpicking. Like I had, I had so much fun at this movie, but like my issue is I want to see more of that person that we all are in love with because I, I managed to read the thread after the movie I had luckily early enough knew that the movie it was going to get adapted into a movie and was not on Twitter that night. So I was like, all right, like let me stay away. Let me stay spoiler free. And I feel like there isn't the built in. This is why this woman is someone you want to follow in a movie. It's more, you know, she's the voiceover character. She's fucking Forrest Gump in this movie. (laughs) And I think we need to like, I think in many ways, you know, Riley plays the protagonist. And I think I want a movie that Zola is the protagonist of in a little bit more central of a way. Yeah, I agree. Riley is, I really love, really love 
Riley Cohen. Even though you would think that if I loved her, I would learn how to pronounce her last name for sure. <laughs> but there's also something, there's really nothing to say about this, but this is something I've observed that's really interesting. I find it really funny that Elvis's granddaughter has become Hollywood's favorite receptacle for white people appropriating this version of like hip hop blackness. This bitch with a nappy ass head was up in my face. Word. She does it in wait, wait, American Wait, 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 She's Elvis's granddaughter? I did not know Did you know not know that? that? <laughs> Me neither. This is breaking news. Wow. I have no idea. She is, yes, this is Lisa Marie Presley's daughter. So oh Elvis's granddaughter. Wow. And wow. she didn't keep the name Presley? And I'm struggling with her last name. Like, that's trouble to me. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's the patriarchy. At a certain point, a man has to abandon their last name if the other last name is Presley. Dare I say? Is that, like, chill? Is that but, not common knowledge? Come on. What are we doing here? <laughs> but, yes, this is Elvis's granddaughter. And in, a, in two different films at this point, she has played this sort of very interesting trope that is... Um, I think a really important avatar of this period of time, I think like the use of South Florida as this reoccurring mo like setting in films in the last 10 years, the use of like hip hop in the way that like rock music was used in like new films in the 70s or like um, independent cinema in the 70s. I think there's a way in which like the use of black culture and the appropriation of black culture is really strategic and insightful and, and deep in so many of these films and many of these films are produced by a 24 maybe there's like a more cynical reason for that that it feels like younger and cooler but i just find that really interesting that this girl is sort of like continuing this weird interesting like cosmic legacy with her grandfather where like blackness sort of is reconfigured and regurgitated through her though as like farce but not so much in american honey but definitely in zola where she is sort of a constant butt of the joke even though she is also like you were saying protagonist and antagonist at the same time in a way well they in in this same interview Janisa bravo talks about the idea that a lot of black culture that is unacceptable or thought of as less than she talked about baby hairs for example which both of these characters have and that Riley Kiao's character has to work to have, you know, like it is like a thing that she is trying to appropriate that becomes, that goes from less than and something that uh, black women are not celebrated for to something that white women can appropriate and then becomes like a hip thing. And I think so much of that character is, let me take these things that would create a true all bad villain just awful person nothing nothing that you could like relate to and put it on a white woman who is fucking elvis's granddaughter <laughs> and suddenly the audience can't fully say this is all bad you know they can't reject it yeah we still there's still like empathetic moments where you catch yourself being like oh should we save her and Zola catches herself trying to save her. And then you realize like, no, there's no there, there. This person is just evil. Uh, speaking of Elvis's granddaughter, should we get to our pairing right now? Cause this is big. I news. would love for, <laughs> this is huge. We literally just broke the most important news story of the year. And it's a perfect segue, <laughs> Joey, to 
our pairing. Yeah, so I walked out of that theater after watching the woman I didn't even know was Elvis's granddaughter, and the first thing I thought was, this woman is playing Gary Oldman as Drexel mixed with Alabama. <laughs> like, this is like, she is true romance playing both parts. And I think, like, right away I was like, the perfect pairing for this movie is true romance. A truly, like, one of my favorite movies. Just a truly perfect movie. Uh, it was technically Quentin Tarantino's second film that he wrote. Uh, but he actually wrote it before Reservoir Dogs. And once Reservoir Dogs came out and there was some buzz, this movie was picked up and directed by the great Tony Scott. Some would say the second best Scott brother, but we don't pick favorites <laughs> over here. All right. And uh, it tells the story of Clarence in Alabama. Clarence is a Quentin Tarantino avatar down on his luck. Detroit man who's a, uh, loves kung fu movies and works at a comic book store and his boss hires him a call girl without his knowledge and played by patricia arquette and clarence in alabama fall in love and accidentally find themselves in possession of two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of coke and then go on the run and it's another story about sex workers and it's another story about unlikely people on a road trip and the violence that follows them it's another story about detroiters going to the coast (laughs) (laughs) but i think it's also just like cosmically and vibes wise really felt similar in a way and from a really interesting reverse perspective because boy is this in the male gaze and in the eyes of Quentin Tarantino and Tony Scott in a way that Zola is not. So, From the director of Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2. Hello, baby! Clarence? I'm a married man, buddy. <laughs> a con man. Ask him if he got the letter. Did you get the letter? What letter? He wants to talk to you. No, Tom, tell him we gotta go. A call girl. You call for a day? Huh? Ah! I'm Alabama. Is she a four alarm fire or what? She seems very nice. What are you doing in LA anyway, huh? And a suitcase full of trouble. My name is Vincent Cocotti. I work as consul for Mr. Blue Lou Boyle, the man your son stole from. Now, all that stands between them and their wildest dreams. Find out who this winging a prayer artist is and take him off at the neck. Are 60 cops. 40 agents. He's a wild man, this kid Clarence. I like him. 30 mobsters. I haven't killed anybody since 1984. And a few thousand bullets. We're all gonna die here. These are cops. I mean, it's one of my favorite movies of all time also. I saw it in theaters about three weeks ago now or something. They were doing like Thursday throwbacks and I had to go see it. But I probably watch it every year. I have a True Romance t-shirt because for a while you couldn't stream it anywhere. And so I had to buy the Blu-ray. And when you bought it on Craigslist or no eBay, 
it came with a free T-shirt. So I have it on Blu-ray <laughs> and a True Romance T-shirt. Um, I think it's so good. It is definitely a movie that I think accomplishes being stressful and funny and enjoyable all at the same time without feeling like any of that gets in the way of each other. Uh, Tony Scott is obviously a master at filmmaking, so it's pretty incredible. Uh, and I thought it paired really well. It They both are like these stories of people being taken from one place and put in another and how do they react. And death is sort of potentially around the corner. At one point you think everything's fine and then something even worse comes. There's some great pimps in, in play. Uh, oh, yeah. So yeah, I, <laughs> I thought it was a great pairing. Yeah, I agree. They all, Both films also use sort of like sunshine and these like paradise proxy spaces as really interesting, violent, decrepit, dark places, Florida and California respectively. Like I thought it was a really, really, really great pairing. I hadn't seen True Romance in a really long time and I really loved it. Like I forgot how much I love it. It's funny how much it feels so part of the early Tarantino energy. Like it makes it almost to me feels like one of his better scripts like during that era. Like I feel like it's totally in conversation with like a top 5 top 5 ranking of his screenplays. It's so good. There's so much sort of like postmodern film talk and it's just a really interesting interesting film and it was a really good pairing because it made me think a little bit more about Zola as sort of like a one directional love story mm. as a in, instead of the way that true romance is definitely a film about two people deeply in love but Zola also feels like there it's a film about like obsession and like the way in which like one person's obsession can sort of like look like love in a way yeah I think there's parts where it feels like it's going to be the classic damsel in distress bullshit, but Quentin Tarantino is good enough to make Alabama a badass in her own right. I think there's a few times, for example, when he comes back after killing Drexel, there's like the laugh line where you think she's going to be like, why did you do this? Oh my God. And instead she's just like, that's so romantic. That's the most romantic thing I've ever seen. And I think they he has a lot of fun with the idea of like, what if these two people just had a fully like cartoonish view of the world, like Quentin Tarantino does, just fully immersed in kung fu movies and comic books to the point where like your whole moral code is about killing bad guys and being cool and, you know, doing what's doing what's best for you two in a way that's like kind of allows you to move through these dangerous places because you have your own different moral grounding where like one liners and being brave is all that matters. And I think it's like self-aware enough that it doesn't turn into a cartoon comic book movie. And instead is like at that meta level you're talking about, which was just makes it a fucking joy to watch it's just like the best you could do with movies yeah they're like psychopathic sweethearts you know so they can get away with all the crazy stuff that they do because even though they clearly lack some level of emotion and awareness of what's okay (laughs) most of what they're doing feels justified so you can get on board with it a movie that i always think about when i watch true romance is natural born killers And I love Natural Born Killers. I think it's an incredible film, but it is 
a deeply uncomfortable movie and like pretty hard to rewatch and it's upsetting and you really like leave not sure how you feel about those characters but true romance is like similar in so many ways but just like so fun all the way through and even the most painful parts like with when James Gandolfini's just kicking the shit out of Patricia Arquette it's brief and she gets the upper hand and, and you feel good about it at the end and then you're like that dude's gonna be a star Oh, yeah. And that was his Tony Soprano audition, and that's how he got in. <laughs> so it's like, it just works out for everybody really well. It's a deeply satisfying moment of revenge, I would say. One of the ones on film where I just felt so ecstatic. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I think the natural born killers thing, like we talked about Oliver Stone in a different episode, but Oliver Stone loves ideas, Quentin Tarantino loves dialogue, and I think that's like what keeps these movies separate. Like he is every character not only gets a great monologue or line or whatever, but even the random cops you see, you're like, Oh, they have entire lives. They're like, we we're like jumping in for this one weird quippy scene about how you use I versus me or whatever. But like, clearly there's a whole life behind there. I think Oliver Stone, it's like, what does TV mean? what does celebrity mean? What is all of that? And that's like what that movie turns into. And it's fucking genius too, but it's a bit, I don't know that there are more than three human beings in that movie where this movie, everyone is a fully formed human being that you're just jumping into for one second. Yeah. You deeply care about Clarence, Clarence in Alabama, but we're also talking about three films that are really deeply inspired by media, right? Like, you know, Natural Born Killers is like a total response to the news, to television, to MTV. This is a film deeply in conversation with movies as sort of like an exercise of like kind of a postmodern thing. And then Zola is obviously based on a Twitter thread. And these are kind of like three different like Russian nesting dolls of like types of media. And they're completely built in, completely built into the film. We should talk about how stacked this cast is it's actually <laughs> really say, intense yeah i've i watched this film and i was like i forgot how many people are in this christian slater patricia arquette dennis hopper gary oldman christopher walken chris penn michael rapaport james gandolfini tom sizemore samuel L. jackson brad pitt iconically oh yeah and val kilmer as the voice of mentor slash elvis this is a crazy cast and it's also kind of interesting to see so many of them come into the Quentin Tarantino universe you know Reservoir Dogs like you said Joey had already come out so we had Chris Penn in that but for the most part there's there's a lot of people from Pulp Fiction in here there's a lot of people who are um, you know Tom Sizemore is not somebody who's shown up a lot in Tarantino films but he sort of reminds me of Michael Madsen he just feels Mm -hmm. like a Tarantino dude and it just feels interesting how Tarantino's fingerprint is like still on this film, even though he famously did not direct it. It, it. Did it feel to you guys like a Tarantino film in any in any way? It does, but I think it's less obnoxious. Like I love Tarantino, I really love Tarantino, but whether you watch the newest Tarantino movie or the oldest one, there's a certain point in it where you're like, okay, we get it. Like you're Quentin Tarantino and you're going to make every movie have these certain things where it's just a wink at yourself. But this didn't feel like it had quite as much of that. Like we're all going to sit around a table and just have a conversation about like some stupid thing for too long. Like 
Samuel Jackson's moment is about eating pussy, and it's cut short in a minute and a half, killing probably <laughs> one of the biggest stars in the whole movie. And like, there's just a little bit less of that obnoxious, drawn out dialogue, which I I personally really liked. Uh, but I do think the best dialogue piece in the whole thing, which was very Quentin Tarantino, and maybe the best thing that he's ever written, is the Christopher Walken scene with Dennis Hopper. That oh my scene God. is just like one of the best scenes I've ever seen in any movie. It's so fucking good. Yeah, the Sicilian conversation is deeply troubling, deeply problematic, and yet very not just very Tarantino, but one of Tarantino's sort of like best like sort of like rat a tat back and forth. Like this is a period in which, you know, Tarantino controversially uses the N word like egregiously. Um he sort of still continues to, though I do feel like he's sort of like hit the brakes on it slightly this is like a big point of contention between him and like spike lee for instance and also just the general public but this scene which is rife with really complicated dialogue is definitely one of the most interesting tarantino face-off scenes of which there are many tarantino's films almost always have a face-off scene in some capacity and it's really one of his most interesting i think well davey you you talk about the quentin tarantino of it all and i think what's fascinating is uh this movie you know was written before reservoir dogs it's that early he also wrote it non-linearly and tony scott took the script and put it linear so like the pulp fiction of it all isn't in there because it was taken out but i think uh i there was some some article i was reading that talked about Quentin Tarantino calls this Clarence like his most autobiographical character. And like we now recognize Quentin Tarantino in Clarence. There's the Hawaiian shirts, there's the quips, there's all of this stuff. But the guy who was writing this article explained it as Quentin Tarantino becoming Clarence in the same way that Hunter S. Thompson became Hunter S. Thompson after Fear and Loathing. Like you create this character who is like, the idealized over the top version of yourself. The movie becomes a hit or becomes like a calling card, at least a cult hit. And suddenly Quentin Tarantino becomes Clarence. And I think like this is the purest form. Cause it's basically like, let me take my id and make him put myself in Christian Slater at his peak powers body and all of this shit that I do plays perfectly because it's Christian Slater doing it. And then as we get farther down the line and Quentin Tarantino gets more powerful and more popular and has all the capital you could ever have, of course you're going to lean into some of your worst things. But like, this is so perfectly just like a young person putting all of himself into a part, all the things he loves, all the things he wants to be. And then just be like, how would this guy move through Hollywood at this moment? And it's just kicks ass. Every line he has, every quip he has, you know, fucking f- tasting like French vanilla just out of nowhere at the roller coaster. You know, like <laughs> all of that is just perfectly timed. And, you know, he always says the right thing, but it also feels like real in a way, which is amazing, at least real in the in the movie world. Yeah, he's writing his fantasy version of his life. So he's writing the coolest version of Quentin Tarantino and the exact woman that he wants to fall in love with, who's a hooker who he rescues, who's only been a hooker 
for with one person prior. So she's still like the pure hooker who he's saving. Right. And she yeah. happens to all of a sudden want to watch kung fu movies for six hours and is on board with you being a crazy person and is just like not a real human. And it's it just everything is fantastical about it and it's him just writing like what would be the perfect adventure for me in my life? That's what this movie is. Well, so some might was thinking about with that is like this is the idealized version of quentin tarantino and reading this interview with janixa bravo she talks about how she saw parts of herself in zola as the parts she saw were the slight remove the ability to kind of like watch and take note and give side eye and be slightly removed in that way and it's interesting how you build your you know avatar into your movie and what that says about the director in a way and i think like the zola we're seeing there is the person who tweeted that out but is also the director in a big way and it's it's fascinating to see that quentin tarantino makes himself the cartoon cool guy you know elvis character and Janixa Bravo, it's about like confidence and being able to be judgmental and above things in like a powerful way. Definitely. I think that's a really interesting point. I do think that both of these films bear a stamp of the person making them for sure. Janixa, I think, definitely is sort of like rerouting the film through her gaze or what it is she interpreted the story as being. And Tarantino being the only author of this story. I mean, it sort of feels like a Bonnie and Clyde meets like Romeo and Juliet sort of thing, but it is like inherently like an original script. But it's sort of like if Janixa is projecting herself into a real life event, Tarantino is like projecting himself into a fantasy version of what he wishes like was his real life or something. And they're really interesting. They're also interesting road movies. Like I actually think, I wish we saw more of Alabama and Clarence on the road, you know, like I kind of just like want to see some of like the drive to California Man, and they just get there like, quick, bro. That's a little too quick. I didn't realize a it was quick. a two hour drive, but they make it there. Yeah. They look fresh faced. I'm like, y'all stop at a hotel. Like what happened? I really wish that there was just like a little bit more of those, like those bits. But overall, I thought it was a really, really, really good pairing, Joey. I just, one last thing before we move on. I, I think through talking about this, the issue that I realized with Zola versus this movie is this movie is very much the rapper's first album situation, True Romance. It's These are all of the ideas I've ever had. You ever notice this? Imagine if you were at a kung fu movie and this could happen, all of that stuff. It's all of these life things pulled up. And I feel like Zola, I wanted more of Janixa Bravo and Jeremy O'Harris in the script. Like I felt they were slightly, all the touches she adds are so funny, so amazing. The When they're in the bathroom and there's different color urine and you know, Stephanie sits on the toilet and Zola needs to hover above it. And like all of these little touches are so genius and I wanna see even more of that. But I think there is a way in which you're beholden to IP, which we talk about so much. Also, it's something like, so famous. Like, that rant on Twitter was viral. So if you change too much, the mm-hmm. movie loses legitimacy. Whereas if you're Tarantino, 
nobody's like read your script before you know no you could do anything tony scott can make changes like we don't know how much of that was director versus author of the original story and i think there's the ip trap in so many movies and i like i think there could have been scenes added to give us more zola that like it's just kind of terrifying to do because you are beholden to that that thread yeah definitely it is sort of a form of like new media ip like you have to kind of keep it relatively chill and there's a way in which Jansica Bravo and Jeremy O'Harris talked a lot in the press of, around Zola about wanting to treat this sort of like the Odyssey, like a mm. really like formal, important text about like somebody's journey. So I think that even if I'm not necessarily seeing that level of epic like application, I think that it means exactly what you're talking about, right? Where it's sort of like there is sort of a, you know, if these films were to be nominated for Oscars, one is a best adapted screenplay and one's a best original screenplay and the threads that sort of hold each writer back from whatever peak success that each could produce are completely embodied in there somehow, you know? Um, but True Romance was a good, good, good pairing and a sort of like, I don't know, is it forgotten? Am I wrong? I don't know. I think it's sort of like underrated i just walked out walked away from it being like this is a film that i deeply love and i completely didn't realize how much i liked it i think it's like a film buffs classic like you know if you are talking to somebody who doesn't watch a ton of movies and you bring up quentin tarantino they're gonna like pull reservoir dogs out of their pocket and think that they got you with that like throwback but that's a they obviously don't watch that many movies but i think the people who watch a lot of movies are the ones who are like Oh yeah, I've seen True Romance like twelve times. It's it's the best one. <laughs> it's a fucking movie too. I feel like we keep coming back to this. It's a fucking movie. Oh my god. <laughs> it's a good one. Should we get into our categories, y'all? Oh yeah. Alright, let's hop into it. Let's chat Freaky Friday versus Parent Trap. Do we want to swap the actors, Freaky Friday, or do we want to swap the characters i think we should switch places i'll just quickly start by saying one i want brad pitt's character in true romance in the road trip car ride in zola i don't need a lot else he can just vanish at a certain point they can drop him off i don't know i just want a stretch where he is in that car and zola has to endure his energy and everyone else's energy in that car i think we want that character in every scene in every movie he just He'll never make anything worse for the viewer. I mean, it's always an ad. For me, it's it's two people who can absolutely change in every role. So I want to see Riley Kiao and Gary Oldman trade roles. You know, they they got some similar vibes. But if anyone could play Stephanie, fifty years younger and gender swapped, it's Gary Oldman. You know, he's played Sid Vicious. <laughs> he's played Drexel. He's played fucking uh, the Prime Minister of England during World War II. This man could do everything. So let's see him play Stephanie. And I think Riley would kill it as Drexel. I'd also love to see Cousin Greg in the Michael Rapaport role and vice versa. I mean, they're such similar energy. I don't even think they would have to get new lines. It'd be fine. <laughs> they could just do their own own lines, same character, same role. So that'd be an easy one. I got a parent trap and I would just swap Drexel for X. So just switch my pimps. 
and uh, <laughs> I, I could see both of them delivering. I've always wanted more Drexel. That's the one thing that I've always wanted from True Romance. So if you give me Drexel for that whole road trip, and he's just around, he's kind of the powerful guy, because he goes so quickly from powerful to such a pussy in True Romance. I want to see him be scary for a little bit longer. Mm. And I feel like X could totally do that egg roll scene in True Romance. It wouldn't be quite as good, but I'd also feel way less conflicted about the language used. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be like a safe a safe trade where we can sort of clean up some of the some of the messiness. Also, Drexel reminded me a little bit of James Franco in Spring Breakers, which was another film that sort of orbited Zola in my mind, even though it didn't feel like a pairing, but it did come up. So it was just funny to see even like other pairings sort of playing out a little bit in true romance. One of the great white guy with dreads of all time. It's like him, the twins from The Matrix. Uh, <laughs> Jack Black in I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. That guy I smoked weed with in Santa Barbara in 2008. And then, yeah. Legend. Yeah. Local Jackson. legend. His name was Drexel. Yeah, that guy, probably. Right? <laughs> okay, you guys, let's check in on our portfolios. How are you guys doing in the market? What are you buying and what are you selling? Pay that man his money. Mm. David, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah, so I'm going to buy some Riley Keough stock, some Taylor Page stock, and believe it or not, I don't have any of this yet. I'm going to buy some Twitter stock. <laughs> right on time. It's high time right now, Dave. <laughs> it's about to boom. It's, it's time to buy. And I'm going to sell... Uh, this is going to be controversial based on my introduction, Rod, but I'm going to sell all of my stock in strip clubs. Not a wow. strip club guy. And the little bit of stock I was holding for the buffets can just go. And I'm selling all my stock that I was tricked into buying by my friend from Tampa in Tampa and just rid myself of all Tampa stock. <laughs> Tampa, it's it's uh, title town right now, Dave. Are you sure about that? <laughs> I'm sure. I don't want it. Joey, what about you? For me, I'm going to buy whoever that guy was who played Michael Rapaport's roommate. I think he's going to have a sweet future. He was hotter than you would think for that stoner role. I think he might pop off at some point, and it's a late in life career. Yeah, I don't even know know his name, so. Uh, Yeah. What's uh? What are you buying and selling, Rod? So I'm gonna buy my Riley stock. I've already bought. I'm gonna keep buying, even though one caveat. I'm not 100% sure whether I see A-list Hollywood star moment for her, but I see a sort of like Parker Posey-ish, like someone you recognize character actress for the next like 10 years career. And I'm 100% down with that. What about this? 20 to 30 years from now, she plays Elvis's mom in the Elvis biopic. And that's an Oscar. (laughs) That's an Oscar And that's an Oscar. Granddaughter playing... Her grandmother, great grandmother. That's huge. Yeah, and you don't buy stocks for the profit tomorrow. You buy stocks for mm. the profit thirty years down the road. We're real long on Riley here. I like that. A hundred percent. Yeah, the the Riley sort of the Riley like tarmac continues forever. So I'm gonna buy stock in her. I'm gonna keep buying stock in the concept of Florida as a psychic space because I think A24 <laughs> really is just stuck here. I don't know what that's about. I don't mind it, but it really is one of their defining sort of like 
aesthetic influences, aesthetic sonic influences. So I'm definitely going to buy that. I am going to sell my Patricia Arquette stock. I love me some Patricia Arquette, but this film made me realize just how stop and go her career is. Did you see I, Little Nicky, bro? Did you see I, Little Nicky? <laughs> so that, that, that reminds me why I'm selling. That reminds me why I'm selling. I mean, Patricia Arquette has an Oscar. You know, she has some Emmys, I think, maybe from that show she did. What was it, like Medium? Um, maybe she doesn't, but like she definitely has one Golden Globe. If you have no Emmys, you at least have one Golden Globe. Um, this is an actress who I really like, and yet I just feel like she gives you everything and nothing, everything and nothing, little too volatile, even though that is what the market is based mm. on. So against all odds, I love Patricia Arquette as Alabama so much that it reminded me to purge my Patricia Arquette stock, if you can believe it. So that's where I'm at. Guys, Two Reels Extended Universe. What do we see here? What is the way in which we're stretching out these stories like taffy? Do you want to go first, Davey? Sure. I got this, guys. Okay. We're walking into the gangbang scene. <laughs> Stephanie. We. Oui. Yeah. <laughs> us, because we're all, we're all there watching behind the camera guy. And uh, Stephanie's getting ready to get into this gangbang. Christian Slater kicks down the door. He murders everybody in the room, lets her know that he's just killed her pimp, and he takes the girls to safety, and they go on the road. Why are they running? Because X's fiance is chasing them down, and secretly, Stephanie is trying to sabotage them the whole time because she actually didn't want to be saved. And the movie is called Chivalry is Dead. Oh damn! Okay, go off. Okay, go off. I see a knife as the eye and is. Oh, yeah. for sure. Sort of that heart mom tattoo dagger. Yeah, I can see that. Mine's more in that's the good, Davy. Anthony Bourdain world, you know, kind of a Netflix travel show type situation. We're probably Netflix. Let's be real; it's a little lower brow than the Bourdain project, but. uh I want Clarence, Alabama, Zola, and Stephanie in a van. And we're going across America, stopping at second-run theaters, hole-in-the-wall pie places, strip clubs, and pools from Florida to Los Angeles and everywhere in between. We're calling this show Diners, Drive-Ins, and Vibes. (laughs) Not vibes. (laughs) Vibes. (laughs) That's another green light. That's another green light. Okay, here's my extended universe elevator pitch. It's sort of a twist on the idea of the extended universe, but I want a different filmmaker to make Zola every other year. I want to see Zola translated through a different filmmaker's interpretation every two years. So whatever like the Disney plan was with those like non-trilogy Star Wars movies, give me that playbook. And let's do it Zola style. I want to see literally every single person. I want to see a Nora Ephron Zola movie. I want to see like literally a Michael Bay Zola movie. I want to see um, Janixa Bravo honestly remake it in 10 years, sort of like um, Haneke Funny Game style. I feel like the story is like flexible and I'm like, I want to see 100,000 people adapt it. I want it to be remakeable. So I just want for the rest of my life to see Zola remakes. What do you think? Do you think there's money in that? I think that's, there is. That's treating it would be... like the Odyssey for sure. 
Yeah. There you go. It's kind of like just a long game of telephone. Mm. Yes. Yes. See what changes. Don't you want to see the Coen brothers do Zola? Totally. Fuck yeah. I mean, that's what I want. We, what we don't want to see okay. is James Franco do it, who bought the initial rights and then had to give up the option. <laughs> I didn't know that. Why do you have to give up the option? I don't know. I think it was just uh, it, the way they she like, explained it was <laughs> apparently white guys, white directors buy up every option in bidding and then they don't make most of them. So she told her agent, if they get rid of it, I'm still interested. And it was like, that's why it took five years to make, I think. <laughs> Damn, he was sitting on it. He loves Florida. He needs to chill. Someone has to actually stop him. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And let me try the remix. Okay, alternate pairings. I told you the only other one that I really thought of that came up for me, which was Spring Breakers, another Florida film that I think is, like, playing around with male gaze, but, like, turning it around and having it be sort of a twisted female on female gaze i think there's something sort of like queer about both films i don't know but spring breakers came up for me instantly what about you joey did you have alternate pairings my other one i was thinking of was thelma and louise just to make it keep it fresh but i thought the other brad pitt bit montage was better but yeah i think uh, similarly just if we had a little more time in the car because that van was or SUV was magic, I think it would have been perfect for Thumb and Louise. More road in road movies. Yes. <laughs> more road in road movies. What about you, Davey? I had Spring Breakers also, uh, but the other one that I had, and partly because somebody suggested it, was Magic Mike, which I think would have been a really mm. fucking funny pairing to put with this. Magic Mike XXL particularly, which is also a road movie, which I think they go down to Florida. I think they like go down the coast in the sequel to Florida. That seems right. Yeah, I haven't seen it. That in seems a couple right. Of weeks, that but, seems uh, like where you go next. Yeah. I love it. Magic Mike is a good one. I th- I think everybody we should if we can put one thing out there in the universe is that everybody take time each year to make sure they watch both Magic Mike films. Just take some self care time and really give Magic Mike your undivided attention. You'll be surprised. You guys- it's fun. It's fun. Any any other thoughts you have? Is is Channing Tatum dead? What happened to him? Speaking of Magic Mike XXL. Where'd he go? It has Where'd been, he go? It's been a hot minute. It's been a hot minute. We're ready for it. It's you. been a while. For the next I think Zola, people need to start... gender flip Zola that's coming out from Rod. Magic. <laughs> They're working on 23 Jump Street. Yeah, he's been working on it for the last five years, yeah. so... It's, um, it's a project. It's kind of like boyhood. They're going to do 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> so I think Gen Stream is being filmed a few months every year for the next 12 years. Yeah.